Hello, listeners. My name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. Chevron is proud to sponsor the Lead from the Heart podcast. I am here with my colleague, Tim Potter, who is the director of our Pascagoula Refinery. Tim will share a short and powerful story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on his career and how he leads others. Hello, I'm Tim Potter, director of Chevron's Pascagoula Refinery in Mississippi. As I reflect on my 34-year career at Chevron, there are one or two leadership interactions that truly shape who I am and how I lead. I'll start by saying I'm very proud of Chevron's culture, where employees are considered our most important assets, which creates an enriching and fulfilling work experience. I'd like to share with you one of the leadership moments that cemented that belief for me and pushes me to always lead from the heart. Early in my career, I was a regional and manufacturing supply manager, which required a lot of travel and time away from home. My wife, Alice, who also works for Chevron, called me one day as I was preparing for a visit from a large group of senior managers. She shared with me the news that our older son, who had lived several states away, was diagnosed with cancer. Needless to say, this set us back as it was something neither of us were prepared for. But work goes on, and I had to finish preparations for the group visit scheduled for the next day. During the visit the following day, one of the senior managers from a different business unit noticed I wasn't myself, and asked if I was okay. I let him know the news and that Alice and I were still processing and weren't sure what to do next. I'll never forget his response. On a day when I was hosting a large contingent of managers, he said, why are you still here? You need to be with him. Then he reiterated nothing is more important than taking care of our families and proceeded to share a similar experience he had. This made me feel better and allowed me to have the right priorities in mind. Over the next several months, he continued to show care and concern for our family by following up with care advice, references, and generally checking in as we worked through a successful recovery. I'll never forget the care and concern he showed, and when I asked him about it from a company perspective, he said that showing empathy, caring, and building trust with our employees is invaluable, and that the company will get it back many times over by winning hearts and minds. To this day, I aspire to lead as he did and pledge to be genuine, empathetic, accountable, and build trust as I inspire Chevron's future leaders to do the same, just as he did with me. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. While many of the guests I invite to join us here are prominent academics who possess uncommonly informed insight into leadership effectiveness, you'll note from time to time that I sneak in other remarkable people whose work is more focused on personal optimization. So my guest today happens to be extraordinarily talented at coaching people to making superhuman achievements. And my goal for our conversation is to learn more about the specific things he teaches. Michael Gervais is a high-performance psychologist who was on the sidelines when the Seattle Seahawks won America's Super Bowl. His feet were in the sand when beach volleyball players Christy Walsh and Misty Mae Treanor won the Olympic gold medal, and he was on-site when base jumper daredevil Felix Baumgartner set a skydiving world record for the highest-ever freefall. While Michael's expertise lies in helping people eliminate self-defeating mindsets, he believes the single greatest constrictor of human potential is our fear of other people's opinions. In his new book, The First Rule of Mastery, Stop Worrying About What People Think of You, Michael says the fear of other people's opinions shows up almost everywhere in our lives. At work, we play it safe and small out of fear we'll be judged or critiqued. In our overall lives, we trade in authenticity for approval. We please rather than provoke. When challenged, we surrender our viewpoint. Ultimately, we find ourselves chasing the dreams of others rather than our own. So now we're going to dig into the work the world star performers are willing to commit to doing in order to attain the self-mastery required to achieve at such extraordinary levels. There's an inner game that high achievers are better at than the rest of us, I think. And so my hope for this conversation is that you leave with a greater grasp of what might lead you to maximizing your own human potential. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Michael Gervais. So glad to be here with you. Well, thank you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And 
in our little preamble here before we started recording, it used the word cool like three or four times. And I had written down right before we connected that you've done a lot of cool things in your life. <laughs> so we're kind of synced up there. And you were on the sidelines when the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl, when Kerry Walsh Jennings and Misty May Treanor won three successive gold medals in female beach volleyball. And when Austrian base jumper Felix Baumgartner made his record-breaking space jump, free-falling at 800 miles an hour. So I hope that gets our audience excited to hear, like, what do you do? What are you doing on the sidelines? And what's the edge that you're giving people to achieve at this level? Yeah, that's fun. Thank you for bringing those three experiences up. Okay, so what do I do? By trade and training, I am a high-performance psychologist. So I'm classically trained as a psychologist with a specialization in the psychology required to be able to perform towards our upper limits, whatever those are, on a consistent basis. And traditional psychology is the study of disorders and symptomology and treatments to be able to help people through suffering and struggling. And sport and performance psychology is the study of excellence. It's the study of what are the best practices that the best in the world do to work from the inside out, to be able to focus deeply, to generate confidence on command, to know how to be calm, to use their imagination to create a compelling future. And, and so sport and performance psychology is really the study of how people operate towards their upper limits. I've been fortunate to be in some fun environments to work across the NFL for nine seasons, three Olympic games, and many of the risk-taking adventure-based stuff that you talked about, Felix being one of them. They have taught me so much about what holds true from the laboratory in consequential high-pressured environments. And if it works in a laboratory, that's a starting ground. And then it's got to work there and in high-stress environments for those psychological practices to be true. And that's where I get to spend most of my time. So I have a lot of questions related to your book. And interestingly, you don't really go very deep into the psychology of achieving upper limits. And so I don't want to go forward without asking you to dig into that a little bit. So mm -hmm. maybe the way to frame this up is to say, what's the common denominator in terms of what you're doing to help Kerry Walsh Jennings and the Seattle Seahawks and Felix Baumgartner? What are you fundamentally teaching them that might be of great interest to our audience? Well, I think it probably starts with why they're wanting to do the work. So let's paint the picture here for a minute, is that elite sport is about 15 years ahead of big business business in general, when it comes to knowing how to unlock the potential of the performer, of the doer. So in elite sport, they are pushing to understand how to be better every day, just like in business, but in different ways, because the product in sport is the person. So the person is often left to be judged, critiqued. They're out there on their own, maybe in a team setting, but they have to perform so they are saying, hey, something really matters to me. I want to be my best. And because that's so important, I'm going to find all of the resources I possibly can to help me towards that aim. What does that mean? That means that there's only three things that humans can train. They can train their craft, the technical skills, whether it's in business or sport. They can train their body, their carriage. And obviously, that's a bit different between sport and in business. But still, all of us need to train our carriage. And the third thing is they train their mind. We can train our mind. So the best of the best of the best are not saying, ah, let's leave that mind stuff up to chance. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Let's just flip a coin, see how we go. Yeah, I should be okay, I think. They're not saying that. But that's what we do in business. That's what we do in kind of everyday walking life is that we say, that mind stuff, isn't that for people with disorders and dysfunction? Mm -hmm. Or spiritualists. Yeah, and, right. and then on the exact other side, you've got the elite athletes that are saying, I want to do something special. What do you got? I want to be great mentally. Because everyone here is good technically. They're sound physically. Like This is a game changer, the mental part of the game. So that's where it starts. So they come to me saying, hey, look, I want to be my best. I don't get that pull yet from business people. So that's kind of the difference right now. But 
there are some exciting businesses that for the last handful of years have deeply invested in scaling psychological practices across their workforce. Microsoft, I've been fortunate to partner with Microsoft since Satya Nadella, their CEO's start as a CEO, and it's been incredible. They have challenged us and give us our remit with them is to help them train the mental skills across their organization so that they can have a growth mindset. That's their cultural axiom that they're working from, growth mindset. And they understand deeply that you can't just put words on walls anymore. That doesn't do it. If you want to be about whatever virtue you're going to put on the wall, whatever that cultural attribute, that value that you say that is important for the culture, there's a whole host of psychological skills that people need to invest in and train. Just like you train your physical body, you can train your mental. So those virtues are true. And their virtue is growth mindset. So they're like, listen, we got to train our mind to have a growth mindset. So what are the mental skills we need? So it's starting to happen now. This is actually very encouraging. Yeah. And we had one of the most successful episodes that we've ever had of this podcast was Herminia Ibarra, who did a deep dive into Satya Nadella's change at Microsoft and obviously his focus on growth mindset. This did not come up interestingly enough. And obviously, this was probably a couple of years ago. I'm not sure how long you've been working with them. But I, I am interested in asking you if you could give an example of what you're doing for Microsoft, because this could be expansive, obviously, for everyone listening, but even perhaps for you, Yeah. because you're teaching something unique. Cool. Very cool. So I've been with them for eight years. And the way it started is it was Satya, Kathleen Hogan, which is their CHRO, and myself. And we're having a conversation about the type of culture that they want to build. And, you know, it's great clarity that it was going to be growth mindset. So, okay, so to make that honestly true for us, so it's not just a word on a wall, like, what do we need to do? So, well, the best practices for athletes who want to be about anything, they want to be a competitive whatever, they want to be a great team. They want to be fill in the blanks of what the culture they're trying to build is, is that the mental part of the game is important. So we sat down with Sati and his leadership team, walked them through a basic eight hour training session. So it's him and his direct reports. And by the way, all of this is in his book, Hit Refresh. And what we did is in the first day is we're walking through the applied science of how to help people generate confidence, manage their emotional regulation, become more calm in high heat moments, to know their purpose, to know their personal philosophy, to, again, train deep focus. But there was a cool moment where we got to about two hours in and Satya looks across his direct reports and he says, okay, this, what we're talking about right now, which was developing your purpose and your personal philosophy, we've got a bold ambition. And he looks to his left and his right. He says, for us to be able to do what we say we want to do, we need to know each other. We need to have our purpose clearly understood so that each of us in this room can support each other on our individual purposes. We need to know each other because you know what? I think Doc is right here, is that it sounds good now. This is like the beginning of the season, but what's going to happen when it gets really hard and we have hard choices that we have to make and we've got that high heat friction in our decision-making, are we going to stay connected? Are we going to stay true? I think for us to do that, we need to know each other. And so he, he looks back up at me and he says, Mike, I don't care if we spend the rest of our six hours on just our personal philosophies and sharing them and really understanding them with each other. We'll get to the other stuff, which we spent about 90 minutes, which was great. And we still got to the other more technical mental skills that we can build. So that gives you a tone of it. And I think great leaders intuitively know that. And the leaders of the future, they're going to need to know psychology because our workforce is saying, hey, we're not doing it anymore. We're not getting whipped around by Wall Street mm -hmm. numbers. We're not going to sacrifice our kids' relationships and the love life at home for the almighty dollar, for your dollar, for Wall Street's dollar. No, 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 no. We got to do this differently now. And so there's a good, healthy tension that's taking place. And I think we're going from the extraction model, which is kind of like a factory model, finally into the unlock model, 
where we're helping unlock the potential, unlock the flourishing, unlocking the good life for people. They spend most of their waking days in service of the shared vision of the company. And then they've got their weekends and a couple hours at night to be with their family. So the great leaders like Satya, quote unquote, I want people who work here to have this to be the most meaningful, important part of their job experience that they've ever had. I want it to feel great here. And so that's like a mark of a modern leader in my mind. You use the word great leader. The idea here and our ambition specifically here is to make everyone a great leader. So you have to understand what the great leaders are doing in order to model that and adopt those practices. And it's interesting that I just read this article about the CEO of Hewlett Packard. And he, for all intents and purposes, reiterated what you just said Mm. and what we believe, which is that we just need to blow up the way that you call it the industrial model. Traditional leadership theory is not kind to workers, not kind to people, not kind to families. It doesn't even consider them. And so it doesn't surprise me that Microsoft is on the cutting edge of this. Is mindfulness a part of this componentry? Yeah, so we work from five factors. The finding mastery model has five psychological factors. Self-discovery, you need to know yourself now. (laughs) Number two is basic mental skills. Three is developing a strong, robust, nimble, if you will, psychological framework. Four is having the best set of practices to recover. And then five is mindfulness. So mindfulness is the golden thread that runs through everything. Mm -hmm. And I'll be as bombastic for just a moment that if you're not practicing some sort of awareness building training, mindfulness is one of the three that is most well-respected. And I'll say it like if you're not practicing something to become more aware of how your internal world works, how the external world works, you're just a grinder. You're not yet in the game of high performance, even if you're the best in the world, okay, which is a crazy idea to say. That you could be that successful without it. Without it. It doesn't mean that you're happy. It doesn't mean that you are flourishing. It doesn't mean that you're bringing the best out of people. It doesn't mean you're making the impact that you could. And so mindfulness is a big part of it. I'm in a complete agreement, which is why I asked the question. And you hadn't mentioned it yet, so I'm glad that you put that great frame around it. Satya Nadella, why him? Why is he on the cutting edge? Why is he doing this before everybody else? So why him? I hear that question. I don't think that any of us are able to escape our upbringing. (laughs) It's part of us. There's a cultural heritage that we all bring to the present experience that we're having. And in case of you and me, it's this conversation, right? So we're bringing our cultural influences and and life experiences into this moment, and they are helping to shape the micro choices that we're making of all the available words we could choose and the tone of the words and where we want to take our mind and, and our part of the conversation. So all of that's there. So for him, his unique life experiences is that for very good reasons from his family, empathy matters to him. And if you do some work on what he's spoken about, you can better understand why that would be the case. So he's working from a place of empathy and empathy would be, it's such an important concept period. So I wouldn't say it's because of just the heritage, just the geolocation, but I think that all of that culmination comes into a place where he says empathy matters and I want to work from that place consistently. How do I train my mind? How do I train myself so I can be about it more regularly so I can not let the external world and the pressure and stress run over my first principle of working from empathy? How do I train my mind so I can be more fill in the blank more often? And for him, that blank is empathy. Thank you. This is all very fascinating, and I think that when we hear what's going on at Microsoft and just his ideas, I got to believe there are people listening thinking, there's nothing like this in my organization. We're not operating this way. We're not thinking this way. We're not leaning this way. We're not even considering it. So I think this is going to be very challenging for some people to listen to this and think how far away we are from making this, this pivot. 
But I also believe that you can make a pivot pretty quickly once you realize what other people are doing and how effective it is. Yeah, that's an interesting framing that you're introducing. And I also want to make sure that I can't speak for any other person. I want to make that very clear. This is my observation of how I've seen others work. So I want to be very clear that anyone that I mention here, that they will have the truth, not me, but it's just my experience of how I'm watching them work. Mm-hmm. But I do know empathy is right at the heartbeat for Satya. And I agree with you that that can change quickly, but it takes, I think, for the most of us, it takes time to come from a place of empathy rather than anxiety or bottom line kind of downward pressure to perform Mm -hmm. fear. I do think, yeah, I think that takes some time to move into that place of deep empathy and hold the standard for excellence. That's a modern way of thinking. I think it also goes to the idea that you mentioned earlier about culture, not being words on a wall and that if true North is defined for an entire organization And the organization acknowledges that we're at the beginning stages of understanding this, but this is where we're headed. I've seen this in organizations where the dominoes start to fall because everybody's having the same discussions and where are you and what have you learned? And you can move it pretty quickly. You just have to make the decision that you're going to move it. Mm, Yeah, I agree. Our world is moving really fast. How about it, Mark? (laughs) And there, there is, there's value and holding true to time-tested traditions. The ancient wisdoms, there's a lot of power in that. And so there is a tension between staying true to core beliefs or practices that have mattered to your grandparents and your great-grandparents and or the origins of religions. Like There is a real friction here between honoring those time-tested practices at the same time, making sure that we are moving at the speed required to adopt, adjust, flex, you know, be agile enough to meet the demands of modern challenges. So there is a tension for the contemplative, mm-hmm. for the ones that, you know, have a certain way that they like to do things. But it's also like, it's so refreshing. I think now is a time for geniuses. It really is. I think a different kind of genius is going to emerge, to your point. Oh, it's a head and the heart connection. Right. Yeah. Thank you yes. for saying that. Yes. Yeah. It's a head and the yeah. heart. And there are people that are already there. They just don't have permission to be there or, you know, it's not culturally accepted. Okay. So, oh my God, I love that you bring that, Mark. we got to stop with permission. Like, I want to speak right to your community that's vibing with the heart-led approach. And we need you. We need you to stand up and to say what you feel and to do it in a way that honors the vision of the company and at the same time honors the well-being of the people. We need you. All of the greats have done that. And so that takes incredible courage. It takes a commitment that is uncommon. And it also means that you've got to have your life priorities in check yourself. You've got to have some sort of platform to stand on. And if you're the the wild person that can't perform on time and is always a bit sloppy and makes lots of mistakes and you're saying, yeah, but we need, you know, we need heartfelt, you've got to have a standard of excellence as well. And so that heart focus piece requires, I think, a little bit more. It's easier to be surgical with hiring and firing and decision making and be a bit cold and use intelligence only. It's harder to thread the head and the heart. And right now, people, me, my family, my team here at Finding Mastery, so many others across the planet are saying, no, 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 we can do better. And that's the head and the heart threading with excellence on the performance side. And can I add one more thing here, Mark, while I'm on a soapbox? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're going down the lane and I wanted to go down with you anyway, so <laughs> please go. You've got me all, all activated. So the thing that I want to add here is that there is a invisible handshake that happens in business. And that invisible handshake is you're part of us as long as you perform. So we must honor that invisible handshake and never be confused that it is conditional. Our culture, our relationships are conditional for a discrete period of time. It doesn't mean, however, that as some of those relationships build, that they're going to transform to outside of work and or after the handshake takes place and you're asked to leave or they leave. It can happen, but I think it's very important to embrace 
that there's an invisible handshake. It's transactional for the most part. We are here to commit to and make a difference in the shared vision of the company. And I want to build companies and help people build companies that are relationship-based and developmentally minded. Okay, But both of those are in service of the mission or the purpose or the collective purpose of the company. So I say all that just to say, look, this is not easy. And we can do better. It's both of those. I mean, I think if companies look at it and communicate it the way you just did, I'm just going to challenge this a little bit. The idea that work is transactional is inherently understood. And some companies, Google, for example, laying off 12,000 people at once on one day via email and cutting off their technology all in an instant, that reminds people. And people who, by the way, were completely unaware that their careers at Google were transactional. We reinforce that understanding through behaviors like that. But if I look at some of the most successful companies, there are many companies where people have been able to have full careers there. That seems sort of anachronistic relative to what it used to be. My dad worked for General Electric for 42 years, worked himself all the way up to the top. And that's unheard of today. But I think conveying to people that your work is transactional, but it's relational why you're here, I think starts with this false foundation. Like, I'm always going to be concerned about whether or not I'm going to be here or not, which I think undermines the whole idea of loyalty and connection and relationship. Do you agree? No. Okay. And I love that we can disagree on this. That's fine. Um, Because... Oh, yeah, because I this think... This will all be edited out because, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't do that, but yeah, I'm kidding. So yeah, yeah, no, okay, I'll tell you my experience. Let's start with the first example of Google. I do not think that that is relationship-based. I think that's incredibly sad. I think that that is a, a callous response. And I don't know if they feel that way and they made a mistake or I don't know enough about it, but just hearing that from you now, I go, no, that's not relationship-based. But the reason companies are developed is there's a purpose, And the purpose of most companies is to sell something or provide a service of meaning to others. And the purpose is not for the employee's children to go to a good school. The purpose is what they're trying to create. That doesn't mean that we don't care about the kids, where they're going to school, the health of the family. And so I think that we're too far away from a commune. I don't think it's turning into a commune in a way that I'm being bombastic again to what you're suggesting. I think it's transactional in nature to sell something, a service or a product, or to offer something that's either benevolent or interesting to other people. And it's our responsibility to create an environment that allows people to flourish. And so I'm saying we can have both. But if we're just thinking that it's the flourish, you know, this is where psychological safety, I think, gets it wrong. And listen, Edmondson has done some amazing work here, and I'm all about psychological safety. But psychological safety for what aim? This is not therapy. We're not doing therapy at work. I am a psychologist. Psychological safety matters. It's the ability to create an environment where people can disagree, like you and I are, maybe, I don't know, and speak our point without the fear of, like, if you disagree, you're fired. The reason that people can't stay with a team, there's many reasons, but one of them is, like, you're not adding to the center, and the center is the purpose of the company or the vision or the mission. Where's the flaw in psychological safety in that respect? That we're going to... Okay, the flaw in psychological safety, by the way, I think Amy got it right, but where it gets contorted is the some of the applications of it. So the principle is sound. Amy's on, and I'm with her on it. Where it gets contorted is I need to bring my whole self to work. Okay, what does that mean? If I want to wear flip-flops, but there's a dress code that says otherwise, but I feel like that's my right to wear flip-flops because my toes are... No, 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 that's not... That's not what we're talking about, okay? And a lot of people that understand psychological safety would say, yeah, that's not what psychological safety is. But the way it gets contorted is that I'm going to process my stuff here at work, and I'm going to bring my whole self in, even if it's a distraction or potentially offensive to other people. That's where this thing starts to get wonky, I think. And I want to be very clear. Psychological safety is one of the great propellants for people to be open to have demonstrate bravery and courage for the good of the company, for the good of individuals inside of it as well. So it's not for therapy. It's not for like a sense of wholeness at work for that aim in and of itself. Listen, I think this is a hot button now. 
You know, I think it's a real hot button. And I'd love for you to kind of challenge some of the positions. I want to make sure that I get to some of these other questions related to your book, but I will say that with respect to psychological safety, and I think it's also emotional safety, it's not just the mind, but I like that. that, you know, there's a reductionist take on the title of my book. So lead from the heart. We don't lead from the heart. That's soft. That's weak. That's sentimental. Guy doesn't get business. Shut it down. Like that's how we go. And so I think if you look at psychological safety and say, bring your whole self to work, which is an ambiguous construct. But mm-hmm. if you just say you can be yourself at your job and people will accept you that way, that's not taking it to the, I can be a complete jerk in meetings or overwhelm people because that's my style or whatever. I think we have to be careful that we don't take things to extreme. Right. Right. And when people have a more realistic understanding of psychological safety, it feels very sound to me, particularly the diversity aspect, which is the world is diverse and people like people like themselves. We hire people like ourselves. And so we're not all that comfortable with diversity. And I think that is an entree into this, which is to say to accept people who they are, welcome them because they're going to add dimensions that you wouldn't have if you didn't. Mm. I love those aspects of psychological safety. Me too. Yeah, I ditto to all of that as well. All right. So back to your book here. Mm. In the big picture, you believe that most of us humans suffer from a lack of self-value and worth. Another major agreement on our end. And that this starts with the assumption that our worth and value are determined by our career or school performance or by our appearance, how much money we have. Any kind of external validation is basically what you're saying. So later in your book, you come back to this, what I believe, and I'm not sure if you steer clear of this word, but it came through to me that there's a spiritual idea that we are fundamentally worthy as human beings just for being here. Like the price of admission, (laughs) you have worth and value. Mm -hmm. So... Does this come from being or doing or both? What makes us worthy fundamentally? What's your definition? Okay, so the thread that I think you're picking up on is that we are living in a performance-obsessed culture. And from that, it's a very natural extension for people to develop a performance-based identity. And a performance-based identity really is, you know, that a sense... I am who I am relative to how well I'm performing relative to how well others are performing. So it's a comparative model. And performance is meant to be an expression of who we are, not a definition of who we are. Hmm. And so when we're trying to define the being and doing piece of humanity, that's a better way of saying it, is that it's just honoring both parts, is that there is a doing part and there is a being part. And we have overhydrated the doing part and outsourced our sense of self to the approval of others. So we are entrenched in doing well and excellence, if you will, and I would love to define excellence in a minute, but we're mired in that part of our modern living. And then we, we look out to see if we did right. We look out to see where we force rank or where we're stacked against others and whether other people are proving or not. And that's where self-worth and esteem get really tricky. And if you live life on those terms, other people define the rules. And they lift their eyebrows, cock their head like, I don't know, was that your best? Or they give you wide eyes and they're like, yeah, that was great. And then you come back from you go, oh, I am okay. You know, or if they kind of squint at you like, hmm, I think you can do better. Then it's like, ooh, maybe I'm not okay. So it gets tricky and complicated. And I just think the whole industry got the thoughts about self-esteem and self-worth wrong. And it's this idea, what I was taught in graduate school was that it comes from the way we think about ourselves. When in actuality, and this is the origin of this work was from Dr. Mark Leary. He proposes the theory that self-worth comes from the way that others look at you. So it's your relational value. It's the way that you interpret whether you matter in the eyes of others. So if you lived in a society where other people were very critical or a neighborhood or a family where they're judgmental or critical, you would naturally have a hard time feeling good about yourself, that you mattered. Well, what's the takeaway from that? Because what you just said is absolutely true. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is to move from a performance-based identity, which is natural for many reasons, to a purpose-based identity, 
And a purpose-based identity is it rests on the big question, what am I doing here? And it's such a big question. It's so overwhelming to so many of us is that I think we need one of three practices or all three that I'll suggest for us to identify our purpose. We need to do some sort of writing about it, some sort of conversations with people of wisdom, and we need to just be honest with our thinking and some sort of meditation about it. So those are the three practices to illuminate some awareness and to get some clarity. And purpose is hard. According to the science of purpose, there are another three components, which is purpose has to personally matter to you. Nobody can give you your purpose. It has to matter to you. Number two, it has to be bigger than you. And number three, it has to have a future orientation, like there's a path towards it. It's not that it's achievable today. And so moving from performance-based into purpose-based is one of the crosswalks that can provide some freedom from this obsessive worry about what other people might be thinking of us. So Mark Leary is saying that this is how we typically operate. In other words, he's saying that we validate our value and worth through the eyes of other people, and we give them the majority of the vote. Right. And you're saying you have to undo that. And the way that you undo that and become less sensitive to other people defining who you are is by being really clear on your purpose and knowing that the purpose is what you're pursuing independent of anybody else telling you what to do. Am I articulating that well enough? You've got it. And the evidence of that is not going to be found in research alone. It's going to be quite intuitive, is that some of the most powerful people that history has celebrated are purpose-based people. You know, you think about anybody that crosses Mm -hmm. that threshold to be very special that have stood up over time and history, Mandela, fill in the blanks, they had a purpose. And they were so clear about their purpose that was flooding their thoughts. It flooded the words that they chose. It flooded their actions. And so when purpose is clear, you have the chance of living with conviction. And that space between clarity to conviction is special. And what rests between those two are, from my standpoint, are a whole host of mental skills so that you can be about it when you get tested. You can be about it in high heat moments. And that's what the greats have done. That's what they've taught us. Just one point of punctuation here is your purpose doesn't mean I have to end apartheid or bring black people equality, Martin Luther King. Like it, it can be something much more down to earth right? I'm here to care about other people. I'm here to be a teacher to people. Yeah, there's zero critique or judgment on what you want your purpose to be. And for many of us, our purpose is to do better for our children. Right. I was the first generation in my family to go to college. And so part of my parents' purpose was to give me a chance to go to college. And so like, that's cool. That's really cool. And so it can be grand. It can be small. It just has to matter to you. And when you know what matters to you, you'll stand in front of a running bus. Mm-hmm. So it's that type of intensity, I would say. Changing gears a little bit, you say that the first rule of mastery, self-mastery, requires looking within and fundamentally committing to mastering what's 100% in our control. So tell us what you mean. There's, there's like the old diagram, like a circle, and what's inside your control and what's outside your control. And list all the things on the inner circle that's in your control and all the things that are outside the circle that you can't control. They're not as important. Well, they are important. What I want to suggest is that this is a proposition of leverage, is that when you're trying to control or manipulate or influence things that you ultimately cannot control, it's okay. You're just putting yourself in a deleveraged position. For example, if you're focusing on what your competitors are doing and you're trying to outsmart them, it's okay, but ultimately you have much greater leverage and power if you're working to master the things that are 100% under your control. And this is just a position of leverage is all I'm suggesting. And the first rule of mastery is to commit there. And more eloquently, the first rule of mastery is to work from the inside out Because the only things that we truly can control 100% of the time are our actions. And what's upstream to our actions are our thoughts. So the cleverness of this is like people say, the only thing you can control are your thoughts, your words, 
your actions, your attitude, your effort. That's kind of it. Your choices, basically, and how you respond. And that's it. So the first rule of mastery is to be great there. What does that mean? It's to know your first principles. Know the values that matter most to you. Have clarity of your purpose, what you're working towards. And then, uncommonly so, line up your thoughts, words, and actions to be in service of your purpose, your first principles, and your values. And then when it's hard to do that, that's why you need to rely on building mental skills of being confident and calm and deeply focused. So that's where mental skills show up for most of us. It's not to make a basket at the buzzer beater, <laughs> leave that for the athletes. For the rest of us, it's being about it in high heat moments. Being about what? Your purpose, lined up with your values that are in harmony with your first principles of life. Changing gears again here. You make an observation that I think is something that everyone needs to realize, which is that we tend to believe, all of us, we humans, that we have a pretty good idea of what the other person is thinking, like what's going on inside their head. We can kind of go, I think this person's probably thinking this. And then we make a decision based on the assumption of what they're thinking. And then there's the collision because the decision that we made is misaligned to what's really going on in somebody. And so tell us why we think we're so omniscient and the more effective way of determining what people are thinking. Wow, we are terrible at mind reading. I think you might be talking about Nicholas Epley's, Dr. Epley's research. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, we're just we're not very good at intuiting just about anything, really. And that doesn't mean intuition isn't important. It just means when it comes to mind reading, it's really hard to discern what's in the mind of another person. And so what Dr. Epley did and his colleagues, he organized a really simple experiment to find out how good we are. And so he separated romantic couples into different rooms. And then one partner was given a series of 20 statements and opinions with which he or she had to agree or disagree. And the statements were things like, if I had to live my life over, I would surely do things differently. And I would like to spend a year in London or Paris, or I would rather spend a quiet evening at home than go out to a party. Okay. And then so in the adjacent room, the other partner predicted how their partner would answer those questions. And so when they got down to it, the couples that had been together for an average of 10.3 years which drifts into that relationship stage where sentence finishing kicks into high gear, 58% of the partners thought they'd be able to read the minds of their partners better than they could read the minds of strangers. But in fact, it wasn't that clear. So random guessing would have enabled someone to correctly predict the answers. Intimacy didn't give any benefit. No. Yeah, that's exactly the point here. So it showed that even when we think we know somebody really well, even there, we're not good at mind reading. And so it was a fun experiment that they designed, and it just kind of proves the point. But your advice is to ask people what they're thinking, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the guidance. I mean, it's so self-evident, but we don't do that. We go, oh, I think I have a pretty good feel for what Mike's feeling right now. And then I ask you later, and oh, so, but you're just saying find ways to ask people specifically what they're feeling and deal with what's real versus what might not be real. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's that simple. And so it shows up this way. Hey, I was wondering, like I saw that there was this look that I picked up on in the meeting. And did you have a thought behind that? Because I'd love to share like what happened in my head. And they go, oh, what happened? And you say, no, no, I don't want to taint it. Like, did you have a thought there? Like, and they go, no, I, I was getting something out of my eye. Or they say, yeah, I was actually really bothered that you didn't mention my name or I was really bothered that you presented this thing when we agreed we weren't going to present it. And like, yeah, I, I think we should talk about that. Say, oh, good. Okay, because I wasn't sure. I kind of thought that. Or it could be, you know, like I said, like, no, I had something in my eye. So ask the question. We're way better off. We're only 20%, even with the most intimate partners, we're only about 20% right. That's interesting. But this goes back to psychological safety. You, in order to have that conversation, you have to feel that your boss is going to say, well, what do you mean? Like, what did you see? You know, it becomes a confrontation. That's right. That's exactly where psychological safety pays dividends. And we need people to advocate for it. And we need leaders to create the air cover. It is a terrible workplace if you can't stand up for something that or say something or be curious about something without being double clicked and ridiculed and pressed on and like, Mm -hmm. you know, felt to be less than. That is a terrible environment. 
Amen to that. Okay, another one in my uh, my hat is your entire book is intended to teach us to become self-sufficient in our feelings of worth and value, which we discussed a little bit. But you nevertheless emphasize that no man is an island, none of us is self-reliant, and the need to belong is a profoundly important human need that shapes our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. And I'm asking this question because I absolutely believe, I write about this all the time, we are longing for connection, we are hardwired to need connection, we only thrive when we have sufficient connection, and so... What guidance do you have for us as individuals and as leaders, particularly in the remote working, work from home world that we're living in now? Belonging is safety, and we are flat out wired for it. And even more esoterically so, we're all interconnected. Like we're more like a coral reef than we are separate nails banged into a board. So the guidance I would suggest is like to get to your source of connection. Whatever that means to you, it could be a spiritual practice, it could be a philosophical position, it could be you putting your your feet in grass, being connected to Mother Earth. There's just so many ways to connect. Mindfulness is one of them. It does not require other people. Listening deeply to other people and trying to understand not just what they're saying, but where they're coming from, the emotions and feelings they're working from, that's a rich way to connect. So connection is just so important. Connect to yourself connect to others, connect to Mother Nature, those practices are paramount for a sense of wholeness and flourishing. What about being with people, literally, physically? Mm, You don't have to. I think it goes, we are in many respects craving that, but you don't have to. I want it. As the founder CEO of my company, like I want all of us in the same building. Like I love it, but that's not what's right for everybody. And there's something very powerful about when you're in person, you get the oxytocin response. You get that sense of connection when you, in corporate worlds, we took away hugging long ago, which is, uh, you know, I come from Italian roots. like Even handshakes. Yeah, right. You know, especially with COVID and whatever. So mm-hmm. there's something very special about a touch, a shoulder, but you've got to follow your corporate rules and da, 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 all that stuff. So I would say that I crave it. I want it. I don't think it's necessary I think it is for many people are more like me, but if you can't get it, there's other ways to do it. You have to connect to yourself, connect to mother nature. And when you're connecting to other people via phone or teams or whatever the video player might be is to really listen and to make sure that you are trying to understand their head and their heart. And that's one way to try to do it. I don't want it that way. I like the physical engagement. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Something else in the, in the grab bag here. Tell us why acknowledging our own mortality, the fact that we will all one day die, is hugely empowering when it comes to being concerned about the opinion of others. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds so morbid. Uh, Played back. Uh, sorry. That way. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I think for me, this is a very important first principle: is to embrace that I am going to physically die. I don't know when that is. So the time I have with you, I don't know how long that is. So I want to maximize the experience when I am with you. That means I need to focus deeply in the present moment. When I'm focusing deeply in the present moment, I can attune to you know, worrying about what you're thinking about me or being in service of our relationship. And so it's a directionality that's important. And so I want to pour into the middle. I want to be a great teammate. And if I'm overly indexed or concerned or worried about how you might be thinking of me. Are you rejecting me? Are you accepting me? Of course, I need to tune to it. But if I'm overly connected to that, I'm really just taking care of myself. This relationship is in service for my gain, which is, that's not it. That's not the right answer now. So I don't know if I'm going to see, like my wife and I left this morning. I've got a son. When I leave my office, I've got a simple little practice. Many people don't know I do it. But when I say goodbye to somebody, I say goodbye, meaning that I don't know if I'll ever see you again. Thank you for your time today. And it's private. I don't actually say that. Mm -hmm. But it's the way I feel as I walk through a threshold away from them. That creates an experience of gratitude? What happens in that moment for you? Yeah, it's a moment of gratitude. And it's a fine sharpening for me to remind myself to appreciate the time we spent and to be connected to how fragile life is. So if I can embrace just how fragile life is, I take less for granted. And when I'm in the presence of somebody, I want to pour into them. 
sometimes that means I got to say things that are hard, like hard conversations are part of pouring in and loving. And, and sometimes I'm holding the standard. Sometimes I'm patting somebody on the back. Sometimes I'm, you know, big smiles, but I'm pouring in as opposed to just taking and just worried about my experience. The honoring of the fragility of life means I want to be great because I don't know if I'll get to do this again. So it's interesting because you <laughs> kind of repelled by the idea of our mortality, but you're bringing it to your consciousness constantly every single day. Yeah, I think that for me, that's important. I think we have to practice it because it's, you know, see you later. We don't actually know that. <laughs> Michael, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation and move into a longstanding podcast tradition that we cleverly call the heartbeat round. It basically helps us and for our audience to get to know you a little bit more personally. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you 14 questions that I want you to answer instinctively, quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you willing to give it a shot? I love this. All right, cool. Here we go. Athlete alive today whose personal mastery you most admire. Personal mastery. Okay. I'm going to point to Carrie Walsh Jennings and one of the things that she's done is she is very clear that she is going to live a purpose-based life as well as a performance-based life. A piece of advice you'd give someone right before they step on stage to give a speech. Oh, two beats here. Everything you need is already inside you. Let it flow. And the second is give them your heart. Wow. That's my mantra. That's great. Mm. Like that's one of the last things I say to myself when I walk out no, on stage. Nice. Um, well, yeah. remember where you are here, but I'm not kidding. That's exactly my mantra. So oh, that's yes. profoundly wonderful. <laughs> that's great. It's one of the things I say to myself, give them your heart, like be reckless with it up here, like pour into them. Don't hold back now. Now is not the time to try to take care of yourself, like pour into them. Best book you've read in the past year besides your own, of course. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, Beethoven. Jen Swathful wrote the book, and you know he's one of the greats. And we highlight him in a book, but it was just an electric read about one of the greats. Mental health challenge you see most in society today? Anxiety, period. Your definition of the word heart? Pouring yourself into a person, a mission, a project where you give everything that you have, and yet at the same time, you don't know how it's going to go. That's what I feel like giving your heart or having heart. There's a vulnerable risk taking where you pour everything into it, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So there is a real consequence or danger on the other side of it, but you still commit to pour in. Wonderful. If you had a theme song, what would it be? Oh, Okay. I mean, for me, I've been just riffing on Imagine by John Lennon. I've also been like kind of on loop. I've had Simple Man by Leonard Skinner. And I, I feel connected to both of those. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I feel connected Very to both diversion. Of those. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Cultural value every organization should have. Oh, every organization should be resting on relationships. And it's the fundamental thing that people are requiring to thrive. And so I would say in a word, it's empathy. What I'm pointing to is resting on the relationships people have with themselves and each other and experience in and of itself. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life and don't mention Felix Baumgartner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, that, 100%. Right? Um, yeah. yeah, I would say go surfing. There's something magical about being out in the ocean and doing that. And I grew up doing it. So I, I think that I'm biased there. Uh, I, I do say, I'll be trite and say jump out of a perfectly good plane you know with the parachute it's it's a it's a shape-shifting thing and then the third is like hands down here's the right answer for me is fully commit to another person's thriving in life to another person flourishing fully commit to that hmm. one thing you'd like to see change in the world psychological awareness becoming more aware of how people work with their own thoughts and emotions and more aware of other people's experience in life awareness the activity that makes you come alive uh, any environment that is emotionally rich, emotionally charged, I could point to a thousand different activities, but it's emotionally rich environments. I love that you're underscoring emotions here. Mm. The best coach in professional or collegiate sports today? Oh, <laughs> I want to go to one that's less well-known. Dan Quinn is a defensive coach at the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, Marcio is one of the legends in Beach volleyball. He's Brazilian. I can't pronounce his last name. So he was 
Misty May and Carrie Walsh's coach, and I have learned so much from Marcio. If you go look at both of those, they're not the typical coach that you would imagine. And then I'd push over to Steve Kerr. He's working from a place of love and joy for his athletes at the Golden State Warriors. I think that's the common denominator of all the people you're talking about, but also the ones that really excel. Mm -hmm. So good. Prediction about the future, you're pretty certain will come true. <laughs> AI is here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so our relationships with machines is going to be more complicated than we imagine now. Subject, I believe all workplace managers would be wise to bone up on. The applied psychology of flourishing. Final question. So besides love, what does the world need more of? Besides love. Basic needs being met. Like we have 300 million people in the United States. There's 300 million people in India that don't have running water mm -hmm. and electricity and gas. Like that's a problem. Okay. Very good. Thank you very much for going through these with me. This was great. <laughs> Seriously. These are very <laughs> provocative answers and thoughtful and, and I appreciate it. So I'm not sure we got to everything in your book. So with respect to our leadership audience and you know what our mission is and what our focus and purpose is, anything from your book or anything from just your own professional experience that you want to leave our audience pondering after we're both gone from the airwaves? <laughs> yes. Thank you. David Foster Wallace, you know, great writer, poet, mm -hmm. had this great analogy where there was two fish that were swimming along in one direction and then there was an older fish that was swimming in the opposite direction and the old fish swims by and says morning boys how's the water and the two fish swim along and for a while and then one of them looks at the other one and says the hell's water you know like the old fish was meant to illuminate something that they had taken for granted that it was so part of their experience that they had missed the weight of it and that's what i want to do with this idea that there is a pervasive fear of other people's opinions. And until we square up with that fear and find a sense of freedom from it, it's the water that we swim in, it's the air that we breathe, it's this pervasive worry about, am I okay in the eyes of others? And until we square up with that, I think we get whipped around by the most dangerous thing in most of our environments in the work setting is the opinions of others. And so there's a calling for deeper freedom for people. And I think this is one of the ways to do just that. The second thing I'll add is that psychology is here and we recognize the importance of it. So we're, we're going to follow in business what we've seen in sport is that 20 years ago, the sports psychologist was across town. 10 years ago, they were inside the building. Seven years ago, they had a seat at the high performance table. And now they're fully ingrained with elite sport. They're fully ingrained in the culture. And that's where business is going. We're no longer going to have sports psychologists or performance psychologists as the extra. They are going to be part of the rhythm of business and leaders, I believe, will be able to help just like they can help in technical skills and just like they help with strategy or tactics. They're also going to be the delivery mechanism, just like in sport. Coaches teach basic mental skills to athletes. And in big business, I think we're going to have leaders teaching basic mental skills or bringing in professionals to help with that. Not psychotherapy, not psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. but just good old psychological skills. Wonderful. That was great clarity, so thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all of this. I really enjoyed it. With that, on behalf of my audience, Mike, thank you so very much for joining us. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I learned recently that 86% of our audience listens in all the way to the end of every episode, with the remaining 14% perhaps thinking that they can bail after the interview is over and not miss anything. So for those of you who stuck around to the end this time, I do have one final thought to leave you with. Less than an hour before going on stage to speak at an important event recently, I learned my older brother had died. I'm grieving my loss, of course, but even more than that, I'm reminded how life can literally change in an instant. I'll never get to spend another minute with my brother, nor did I get the chance to say goodbye and remind him of the profound differences that he made in my life. While it's very possible he knew how I felt and that no words needed uttering, I will forever regret not taking one intentional minute to tell him everything I felt for him directly. 
So my plea to you is to not miss the opportunity to tell people you love all that they mean to you. And I encourage you to do it today. I want to thank my team that brings you our show, our honorary founder, Mr. Ken Boynton, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and finally, my great producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. If you're interested in spreading our message, please pick up a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart, and or tell a friend about our podcast. We would greatly appreciate your doing both. And finally, never forget that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. So love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.